So this evening, I'd like to continue with the factors of awakening. And so I'll use uh, two, one from a little at the beginning, one from a little at the end. So it's virya and samadhi. So virya is generally translated as energy, vigor, effort. And so I think what it points out is that when we do the practice, then actually we need some energy. We need some vigor. And often there is, of course, this idea that if we do meditation, it's going to relax us and it's going to be wonderful. But possibly after two days of meditation, you might think it's a little tiring. <laughs> and it's true. I think to meditate, to sit still doing nothing, or looking like we do nothing, actually requires a lot of energy. And so it's kind of looking at that aspect of the practice, that yes, we sit still, or we walk slowly, or we walk at an ordinary pace. But to do all these things, we need a certain amount of energy. And at the same time, we have the four postures. And as the Buddha said, like the, the sitting and the walking posture are the ones who require more energy. And the lying down and the standing posture require a little less energy. And so I think in terms of daily life, it's very important to see what is it I can do? How much energy do I have? I found for myself that I use a lot of the lying down posture at night, when I go to sleep, if I wake up in the middle of the night, in the morning, I, I just you know try to do the practice and I found it very useful. So I think to see, yes, sitting meditation is a good posture, but we also have the three other. And each will require a different amount of energy. So we require some energy, we require some physical energy, but also we require, I would say, some mental energy. You could nearly say some emotional, psychological energy that, you know, there is enough energy to be able to concentrate. There is enough energy to be able to investigate. But then, according to our circumstances, physiology and different things, we might have more energy at certain times than at others. So I think it's also to see that if we think that we can, at some point, reach a level where we can meditate in the same way all the time, I am not so sure, because I think it will very much depend on the level of energy we have. If we are ill physically, then we might have less energy if we've not slept well. So I think it's also seeing how can I use my energy to meditate according to its level? And that's what you might notice even during the day here. At some time you might have more, at other time you might have a little less. And as I said before, at certain time, certain practice might be easier, and at other time, other practice might be easier. And that's why I'm bringing different methods so that it's also 
according a little to the energy we have. But there is also, I feel, this kind of like when we talk of uh, effort. Like often we have this um, idea of effort as something in a way which requires a lot of energy. So to have effort, we need lots of energy. But actually often effort is connected to intention. And it's actually more about trying. Because often, it seems to me, when we think about effort, we're actually thinking often very quickly about result. When actually viria is about trying, is about giving it a try. But if we equate effort as, yes, it's real effort if something happened. It's not if nothing happened. But I would say, you still tried. So I think we have to, I think we have a strange relationship with effort because we often look more at the result of why we do the effort. We're more concentrated, kind of focused on that, that on the fact we are trying something. And then the question is, how are we trying? Because there can be different kind of effort. And in Zen, we have this interesting term, effortless effort. And I think this is, in a way, the challenge of meditation, is actually how we balance our efforts. Because sometimes we try too hard, and then it brings tension. Sometimes we try too little, and then there is not enough energy. And then sometimes we are in this effortless effort, which is balance. It's a little dance because I think we must not think I must always effortless effort. I think it depends. Sometimes you push a little too much, then not enough, then ah, it seems just kind of to fit, to be appropriate. And so I think we kind of have, it's kind of a practice in itself, this efforting. How do we effort? How do we try things out? And how we consider trying is trying about resulting. Of course, if we do something, we need to look at the result. But I think we need to look as much as efforting as resulting from that effort. And then for me, in terms of on retreat or in daily life, with effort, I often have these kind of two words the least or the most. Because whenever we think of effort, we seem to think of what is the most I can do. And personally, I would nearly feel the opposite. What is the least I can do in that situation? And to see what does that kind of uh, create in me? What is the most? It's like there is this huge mountain. And I need lots of energy, and I'm going to go up the mountain. And sometimes we can have the energy for the most I can do. But not all the time. I remember when I was doing this month-long retreat, and I was really happy. It was a long time. I had not done a month-long retreat, so I was really, really full of viria. I was really 
lots of energy, lots of uh, effort. I was all going for it, you know, getting up early, sitting late. Yes, this is going to be great. And actually, the most effort lasted three days. Because on the third day, I started to have pain in my stomach because of the food. And then I had to totally rearrange my effort, my efforting, actually. But that did not stop me from having a very good retreat. But to me, that's what was interesting, is that if it's not the most, often we think it's not worthwhile. We have this kind of like, you know, this is the effort benchmark, the most. But is it realistic? And so to me, sometimes it's what is the least? Or what is the most I can do which is reasonable? I love gardening, and my body has an interesting relationship with gardening. <laughs> and so I have to be careful, because I start to garden, and then after two hours I say, yes, I could do this, and I could do that, and wow, it would look great, and this needs to be done. And, and my I feel my body saying, you know, I can see my mind kind of really kind of going into the resulting of that effort. But if I listen with mindfulness to my body, I find, whoa, I have to stop now. So that's what I learned, gardening, to really listen to my body. So to bring energy, to try things out, but at some point I have to say, this is it. And so in a way to what is reasonable, what are the, all the conditions coming into that effort? <coughs> Another teacher I really respected in Korea and really inspired me was because he was really kind of a great meditation teacher. But in his own Zen temple, Zen center, he had a rule that you could only sit in meditation eight hours a day. And you might think, wow, that's you know, enough already. But in Korea, eight hours is really kindergarten stuff. You know? mm. I mean, it's kind of like you know, the, the least you can do. Really, this is the least you can do. Because generally, they do 10, 12, 14. You know, Stephen one did, he arrived. And he had to do 14, which basically 14 means 14 sitting and four sleeping. And then I was called up. You have to translate for this guy. I said, what has, what has he done? What has he done? So I go down and they tell me, at 2 o'clock in the morning, he gets up and he goes, ah, this is very disheartening. Can you tell him to stop? <laughs> So he stopped doing it. But it was not easy, just doing 14 and four hours. It was just, I mean, after that, he kind of, anybody who wanted to do it, he managed to stop them and just have the 10 hours. So this great master was actually saying eight hours. So every evening, he would go around. And if after the eight hours he found anybody sitting, he would stop them, because they would do it, you know, hiding, you know. <laughs> you know, I want to sit more. And he would say, no, 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 no. 
But because his idea was for these eight hours, you were really there. So you did not spend half the time sleeping on your cushion. You were really there, really awake. So basically, he wanted quality instead of quantity. I mean, this is also the thing. Sometimes we think quantity, that's what we go for, when sometimes actually it's quality. So I think, in a way, it's kind of looking how we move from least to most. And then I would say, what is the middle way? What is reasonable today? What is reasonable in daily life? So to see that, yes, we need to have a certain effort, but can it be what I would call an experiential effort commensurate to our condition? And then within that virya, you also have this idea of enthusiasm. So virya, there is this idea that you are enthusiastic. So that when you see it, they have the lovely image that it's like an elephant who is very hot and he rushed to jump in a cool pool. And so us trying to have that enthusiasm when we come to sit, <laughs> see how it goes. <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's kind of also looking at the fact that yes, it is not easy, and that's why we need virya. But actually, it is valuable. I think when we put effort, it's because we value something. And so personally, as a meditation teacher, I feel extremely lucky that I can not only teach it, but more than that, I can sit with you once a month, I can sit you know, for seven days. And I really value that. It doesn't mean that all my sitting or walking are fantastic, but I value it because I have felt its benefit, but also because I value, I think it's an activity which can really, if it suits us again, it's not magic. I think the efforting, the energy, there is a point to it. There is an effect. And I think that's why there is this efforting. There is this energy. There is this enthusiasm. I remember when I was in Korea, at the beginning it was extremely difficult. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I missed times because I, I can't do this anymore. I can't, can't. And then finally, something happened which really made me change my attitude to it. And to me, what was interesting is that it was still kind of difficult. I had pain, I was sleepy, etc. But I really was enthusiastic. I wanted to do this. This was my choice. Nobody forced me to become a nun. Nobody forced me to sit on the cushion. It was my choice. And the more I did it, in a way, the more I experienced its value. And so in a way, the more I had enthusiasm for it. And so I would come, you know, always the first. I would not miss anything anymore because I value it. And I must say, in a way, these 10 years in Korea was really valuable for me. So is that kind of, that's what I think Virya is about. 
And then you have samadhi. So samadhi generally is translated as concentration. Or sometimes it can be translated as concentrated state. And this, I think, yesterday we talked about attention. We talked about investigation. But I think what I'd like to look tonight is what is a function of samadhi? What is a function of concentration? Because again, if we focus on concentrated state, and if I say concentrated state, and generally some people who are in the know, not everybody, will think jhanas. And jhanas are special meditative concentrated states. And there is a big thing about them at the moment. Lots of books, you can go on retreat and have these special states. But I think, in a way, before going into what is the result of concentration, to me what is interesting is what is a process. And also to look at it, because I think it's a very complex subject and complex practice. What does it mean to concentrate? And also, in a way, what is our relationship to the world? Concentrate. Often you sit in meditation and you say to yourself, concentrate. And then you kind of all over the place, concentrate. And it doesn't seem to have much effect. And so when we speak in English, concentrate, generally we tighten and we narrow. And that's where we concentrate. But I think it's a little, it's kind of a little kind of opposed to what we're trying to do when we're trying to concentrate in meditation. It seems to me, in a way, you have two types of concentration, basic two types of concentration in medi Buddhist meditation is what I would call exclusive concentration and inclusive concentration. So exclusive concentration is when you push everything away. You push the thought, and you are in a very silent, quiet atmosphere, and you try to be very concentrated. And if you do that, of course, it's not necessarily easy. It might make you tense. It could also make you a little aversive. But if you do it long enough, and if you have enough propensity towards it, then generally, you can experience a concentrated state. But I am not sure personally that this concentrated state is necessarily going to be very useful in daily life. In terms of meditation, yeah, it could have benefit. But in terms of daily life, if you try to have that same concentrated state as you go about your day, I don't think it's possible. Because you need for that to have very specific circumstances. So to me, in a way it makes more sense to think of inclusive concentration, which then is something we can more, it seems to me, easily practice and bring into our daily life. And then it's more like an anchor. That's why I talk of anchoring. So let's say you have the breath, or the listening, or the loving kindness, or tomorrow we're going to do awareness of the body. That's an anchor. And what does an anchor does for a boat? It does not keep the boat still. 
but it makes sure that the board does not get too far away or does not disappear. So in a way, the boat is around here, and it goes a little like that, but it doesn't go too far. And so to see the breath or the body or the sounds or the loving kindness as that, it's like anchoring us, anchoring us in the experience. And that's what's so interesting. When you become distracted, for example, you come back to the breath or you come back to the sound. You don't just come back to that. You also come back to the whole moment. And that's what, in a way, is interesting about meditation, is that it brings us back to this multi-perspectival, plural experience. So the anchoring is that. It comes, makes us come back to one thing, and at the same time make us come back to the whole thing. So it has that aspect. But even more so, if we look at that, because often we think of concentration, I must stay. I must stay with the breath all the time, every second, every nanosecond, I am with the breath. And then you're like, yes, yes, yes. It's kind of like, you know, you tighten often. When actually we're trying to rest on the breath or rest the attention on the body, or rest attention in the sounds, to again be in the experience. But, as I said yesterday, when we come back, to me this is, it doesn't seem to be very much, but I think this is one of the main effects of meditation, is just when we come back. And I think that's why concentration is a factor of awakening is because each time we come back, three things happen. The first one is we don't feed the thought, for example. So we don't feed the mental habit. Secondly, as we come back, we dissolve its power. And third, over time we bring it back to its creative functioning. So that's why, personally, I don't believe in no thought. I mean, you have a great Zen master, and he said, no thought is actually having a wide open mind who does not stick anywhere. So it doesn't mean you have no mind. It means you have a, diff you have a different relationship with your thought. So in a way, why samadhi, concentration, helps us, it seems to me, to be more calm and to be more spacious. Because if we don't feed our mental habits, then they come back to their creative functioning. And then there is more space, I would say, for creative thinking. Instead of having what I would call repetitive thinking or double repetitive thinking, so you think about the repetition and the commenting on the commenting and the telling of the, I mean, it's kind of, you know, you have kind of, you might have noticed you have different circles there. But in a way, each time we come back, we are not feeding, we're dissolving the power. And then over time, the thought have a different feel. To me, that's what is interesting. The meditation to, when you start to see, I would nearly call it the taste 
of the thought. That with the meditation, we kind of start to see how we, how we taken by thought, that each have a little different taste, different feel to them. I mean, one of the ones that uh, we kind of often do is daydreaming. You sit there, the body, the sound, or whatever, the breath. Hmm, if I was, if I had. And what's the feel of that? If I had, if I won the lottery, or if I had this, or whatever it is you dream about, you daydream about. Personally, I used to daydream of uh, going to a hermitage, practicing hard, becoming awakened, and saving everybody. <laughs> Until I realized I was daydreaming about meditating and not meditating. <laughs> then I changed it to you know, being a kung fu mistress. You know? and so, I mean, each have their own thing. <laughs> but what, well, when I really started to see, to see what was the beginning, and the beginning was this, mm. I mean, it was like, you know, ice cream, chocolate cake, mm. very enticing, very seductive. And why is daydreaming so seductive? Everything goes according to plan, <laughs> you know, and then we tinker it, improve it, add to it. So, I mean, the time passed very fast. Daydreaming is one of, you know, like the favorite activity. It's really pleasant. But if you do this in daily life, it's a little frustrating, you know? You're imagining the perfect, I don't know, children, husband or wife, and you know, ah, oh, yes, you know, and then they come back and they're all cranky, and you think, wait a minute, in the dream, they are so much better, you know? So, but what is the function? The function is imagination. So that's a creative function. So in a way, through the meditation process, through the kind of coming back, coming back, we slowly first see what is it I think about, what's the shape of it, and then we see mm, what's the beginning of it, how does it start, what's the hook in a way, what happened. I mean, another one is ruminating. I think this is wonderful for a Buddhist, ruminating. So you find here, in this moment, I hope, and suddenly you have a thought, or you have a memory, or you have an image of something negative and painful. They said this, they did this, this was terrible, this was so awful. So you turn it a little back in the past, then you start to have pain now, and generally you go into the future and you plot revenge. You know, and I'm going to meet them, and, and then you try to find the most cutting thing you can say to them. Very compassionate activity on the cushion. But it's interesting to see, you know, how, what is our relationship to the past? That, that's it. In, what do we do with the past? Because it, it has existed. In some way, it's part of us. So it will pop up. But what do we do with it? Do we try to change it? Do we regret it? Do we, or can we see it? Oh yeah, that's the past. It's gone. When I was in Korea, I used to wake up from 
a certain dream, which was a bit of a nightmare for me because suddenly I would dream that I would back at school. And then I would wake up and think, wow, I am a Korean Buddhist nun. This is great. I mean, you might not think, you know, that's what you would have thought. But for me, it was like, ah, I'm so much happier being a Buddhist nun than being at school in that classroom. It was very interesting, that moment of really, you know. So, you know, you have different things in your past, wonderful things, difficult things. And can we kind of know them and let them be there? And I think the meditation, the concentration can help us to, oh yes, that's the past, but I am here. Oh, I'm going to the future. Let's try to be here. And so to see, sometimes it's interesting, you just barely, you're sitting there, relatively in the experience, and then suddenly you find you're 20 years in front, you know? But what if that happened, and that happened, and that happened, you know, and I'll be 50, 60, or whatever. And then, I mean, if you think of the future, I generally see, look at two or three years at the most. We never know what might happen. So it's kind of, in a way, with the concentration, giving less power to that. So that instead of being kind of like, kind of a habit, mental habit, which fix us, which hold us, it becomes something which is more open. There is more space. And then I think we can be more, I can think this if I want, I don't if I don't need to. There is this freedom. For me, the concentration helps us with this freedom. But also I think what is important here in terms of the thought is that to see over time that you have different type of thought. You have the light thought and that you can come back so easily from them. Then you have the habitual thought, and then you can see, where do I go? What influenced me? And then you have, as I said in the discussion, what I call the obsessive thought, the intense thinking, because something happened recently, and then it shocks the body. And we have to see that this has to go through us. And the thing we can do is bring a little space, again, thanks to the concentration. So we don't annihilate the thought. But with this kind of intense thinking, we bring a little space. So with the concentration, over time it's easier to have light thought. So you sit there and you might have up, and it just actually comes back on its own. You don't have to think, come back. Actually the thought arises and it goes. It arises and it goes because you don't do anything with it. Then the habitual, in a way, the more you see it, the less you will be identified with it. I need to plan. I need to do this. I can't stop doing it. And it's more, hmm, possibly not. But with the obsessive sort, I think, when it's intense, you have to see it as in a way to go through you a little. But you can still create space, thanks to samadhi, to concentration, to coming back, to anchoring in this experience. And so then, the thought 
intense thought is part of a larger experience. That yes, you might have some intense thinking. Yes, we might have some intense emotional sensation. And there might be some physical sensation. But even that is within a wider spectrum of life around you, of your other capacity, of your other ability, of your other experience. Because of course, when we have an intense thought, feeling, sensation, something happens, something has shaken us. And then it's kind of how can we let it pass through us? Of course, it will still be a little unpleasant, but if we don't amplify it, like all things, it will pass. And then I wanted to finish a little with the loving kindness. And so the, we did the loving kindness meditation. And I think it's very important to see that there are many different ways you can do it. I mean, if you listen to many different teachers, they will generally, I mean, I choose a very simple uh, formula, formula for the very simple sentences. And some people have a, have a different relationship with the, with the words. Sometimes people are not happy with safety, or sometimes people are thinking, mm, happiness, I don't know about that. Or sometimes people think, may, 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 I'm not sure about that. I think what is important to see is that you can use whatever wording works for you. So there is like a template, but within that, you can play with the template. You can drop may, you can drop happy, you can do different things. Because what we try, what the Buddha was trying to evoke is a kind of kindliness. And, and, and I mean, why this, he, he, he taught this method was when monks came to him and said, we're in the forest on our own and we're so afraid. We're afraid the tiger are going to attack us, we're afraid the robber are going to attack us, and we kind of like always on the kind of, you know, we can't settle. And he said, oh, do the loving kindness. And then he gave them the phrases. And I think it was to kind of like calm. It's, it's interesting. If we think kindly of somebody, often, in a way, it's kind of like, it's nearly like a different feeling. We might, I mean, I'm not saying it works for everybody. But often there is something which seems to come back. That if we start by being quite aggressive, often what we'll get back is aggression. I remember many years ago I was in a train traveling to Asia. And I met this French fellow. And so we were talking French together. And he told me, I mean, we're in Turkey in the train. And he said, beware of the Japanese. They're really aggressive. I thought, the Japanese? I mean, I had not heard that. And, you know, like he was telling me all kind of bad story about the Japanese and what happened to him. But, I mean, he had kind of a funny, aggressive energy himself. And then when I met Japanese later in my travel and went there, I mean, I did not have that experience whatsoever. So I think it's kind of, what are we, 
what kind of energy, what kind of feeling are we giving to the situation? And also to see that for the Buddha, what was so important was harmlessness, non-ill will. So that it be in terms of the way we spoke, the way we encounter people. And so he's trying to, with the loving kindness, he's trying not to be sweet all the time. I think, I think we have to be careful. Uh, loving kindness doesn't mean that, that we're going to kind of, you know, smile at everybody and being kind of, oh, yes, 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 you know, I love everybody. I mean, it depends. You know, you have to bring wisdom to it. That's very important. But it's kind of saying, can I see other human beings? Can I see beings with kindliness? Can I, can I start from a place when I don't think straight away they are dangerous, or I want to get them, but that if I don't know anything, I'll wait and see. And also to ourselves, to me that's also what is interesting. As you sit in meditation, what kind of language are you using toward yourself and others? Is it like a kind language, or is it a harsh language? Because sometimes we can really give ourselves a hard time. You are like this, you are like that, why don't you do this, if only. I mean, that's why I think it's interesting to see what kind of language do we use. Is it a kindly language? If we think of others, is it a kindly language we're using toward others? Because that's going to influence us. And and then I'll talk later on about the feeling tone, because I think that very influences us a lot. But I think just, in a way, in terms of the practice, the mindfulness, is to see. And the loving kindness is, in a way, reminding us, can I be kind to myself? Can I be kind to others? And then the fact that you are kind doesn't mean that you are not firm or you are not wise. But I think it's kind of seeing, trying to see, can I bring that? Because I think in a way it's, so, it's an easy thing to do. That it be in our daily life, in the supermarket, in the post office, in the train. I mean, Stephen don't do it, doesn't do it anymore, but he used, you know, you have this special courage, uh, train in England now where everything must not use their phone. It's a special, quiet carriage. And he would go to that carriage specifically to jump on people who started to fall. <laughs> and he was kind of like waiting for that, you know? And when there was nobody, he was very disappointed. <laughs> I thought, wait a minute, he doesn't do it anymore. But I mean, it was just at the beginning of it, when they had these special carriages. But I thought, What's the point? I mean, yes, you can say to somebody, but it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to get them, you know? <laughs> and sometimes we have this tendency, you know? Yes, yes, but if they do it, I am going to get them, you know? And I think the Buddha is saying, well, this might set you up <laughs> a little bit, you know? How can you bring kindness? I would say loving kindness is about how can I bring kindness in a wise way for myself and others. So when you cultivate the phrases, yes, you can use the phrases, you can use whatever language, 
what helps you. But you can also try to connect to that quality of kindliness. And to me, kindliness is just seeing the other person as a human being. To me, this is really uh, a breakthrough. And one of the ways you can see that, and that's the way it helped me, is when you know, and this back to what I talked about yesterday, the impermanence. When you see somebody, my, my teacher used to say, your life rests upon a single breath. He did not say that to make us frightened. Ooh, this is terrible. My life rests upon a single breath. I must breathe more or whatever. <laughs> but it was more, this is, this is kind of you know, fragile. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to sleep through it? Or are you going to try to awaken? Are you going to try to be compassionate? So how you have this breath, you have this life which is fragile, what are you going to do with it? But personally, in a way, I see it also another way, which is if I see each person that their life rests upon a single breath, then I can see they are precious because they are fragile. And so can I meet them there as a human being? And for me, that was a breakthrough many years ago with my mother. When I saw her, instead of my mother and all the story I had with her and the baggage we might have, I started to see her at this human being here, who is breathing, who is fragile. And then it was so natural to be kind, to be compassionate. Of course, because she is my mother, but more than that, because she is a human being. And then trying to be with human being in that way. Of course, we cannot be like that all the time. Because that's what then is interesting. What are the conditions that helps me to be kind and to be loving? What are the conditions that actually does not help me? And then it becomes interesting to see. When am I impatient? When am I irritable? When is it that quickly I accuse the other person without knowing anything? You did this. I mean, I had this wonderful experience many years ago when I was a nun. The rule master used to live next door to us. And he used to have a kind of slightly volatile temperament even though he was a role master and had done lots of meditation. And so one day, I don't know why, he thought I had done something. He said, you did this. And he started to berate me. And I said, I did not do this. He said, ah, you did not? Fine then. <laughs> and I just thought it was wonderful. Like, you know, suddenly he was up and suddenly he was down. So actually he was not taken over by the energy of the anger, or the remonstration. When he heard me, he said, oh, you did not. Then it must be somebody else. OK, I'll go and find <laughs> him. <laughs> but me, I was OK. So it straight away went down. You know, and I found this is, in a way, the kindliness is to help us a little there. Because we saw quickly, it's them, it's him, it's her, it's me. And he kind of said, OK, OK. 
Can I bring the kindliness? Because then, yes, there could be some problems, some mistake or whatever, but they, you will be relating to it differently. Because I think in the kindliness, there is, in the loving, there is more space. There is more openness. So, that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions? Yes. No, you see, in a different Buddhist tradition, you have different way to cultivate loving kindness and compassion. So, in the Theravada tradition, uh, you have this explicit loving kindness and compassion phrases also. And then, in the Tibetan tradition, you have what is called Tonglen, exchange of self for others, which is a little similar, but a little different. It's a little different way. And then in the Zen tradition, uh, I cannot speak really for the Japanese tradition because it's a little different. But in terms of the Korean Zen tradition or the Chinese Zen tradition, what's really important there is two things. Is the four vows and even more so the Bodhisattva precepts. And like in the Japanese tradition, they shorten, they shorten the precept. But in the China and in Korea, they have the Bodhisattva precept. And you have 48 plus 10, if my memory is correct. I'm the translator of them, but my memory is going a bit. And what is interesting with this, why I translated them? Because in Korea, uh, as monks and nuns, you recite them at least once a month. As lay people, you take them once a year. So what is interesting is that there is this notion that you take the precept, this bodhisattva precept, and you take them every year because you are, you know, you can have condition which makes you not so compassionate, so you have to be reminded. So it's very much seen as a, as a practice. You come back to them again and again and again. In terms of the temple, what I could see very clearly is that the way people behaved compassionately and kindly was actually a lot because of the Bodhisattva precept. Because the Bodhisattva precept, I mean, some of them are very cultural. Some of them is what I call competition with other traditions. And then some of them, which I think are the heart of the Bodhisattva precept, are basically about wise compassion. And so you have a lot of things about how to deal with people. For example, uh, do not repay blow by blow, uh, anger by anger. If somebody asks you for forgiveness, please accept, give them forgiveness. Uh, lots of things like that. Uh, save sentient beings. Um, you have 
rescue people in difficulty. Uh, you have also treat people who are ill, like if it was a Buddha who was ill. So you have lots of, uh, basically it's about compassion. It's really about wise compassion. So I think in terms of the practice, it's really not, it's really about that daily life. It's really about cultivating compassion in daily life. And so there are various things that they do which kind of like act like reminder. Like one of the precepts is about animals. Whenever you see an animal, you need to tap the animal if you can. And then sotto voce you say, may you be awakened, may you be awakened, may you be awakened, you know, like in a future life or something, you know? Or you have, like if somebody make a mistake, the person can just go and bow to somebody a little higher up, say, I made a mistake, and that's it. For, I mean, f forgotten. Like we, here we forgive, but we don't forget. But there it's really forgotten. If you say, I made a mistake, and you don't have the intention to do it again, then it's, it's fine. And what else? There is lots of lovely things like that. You know, like also when they, they burn the fields still, and so they only burn them in the winter when everything is underground, and so they're not going to burn insects and different things like that. I mean, to the point that in the 1800s in China, actually the temple were like zoo because people gave them their old animal that they would not kill because of saying being sentient being. And then they would have, you know, the enclosure for the bird, for the cows, for the donkeys, and you know, it was kind of a little of a, of a zoo. People, I've read the story of travelers describing that. So it's, it's kind of really an influence in their daily living, how they relate to each other. So that's where the practice comes. That's why it's kind of less obvious as a practice. And at the same time, and that's why, in a way, that's one of the things that convinced me about the meditation. I think we can cultivate compassion in a kind of directive way, like doing the loving kindness or the compassion. Or we can cultivate concentration, attention, investigation, which are factors of awakening. And actually doing that helps us to be more compassionate. And the first time it happened to me, when suddenly I thought more of somebody else than myself, I thought, wow, this is working. Because I think it also worked that way. That just by asking a question, like I will teach in a few days, or just by doing listening meditation, or by doing breath meditation, I think if we doing the meditation, generally at some point, it seems to me it opens us up to the other with more compassion. And if it does not do that, then I would question the method or how we do it. I mean, I, had a, I met a man many years ago. He was an architect and he had a little kind of, you know, meditation room in his architect office, but that was long ago in the 50s. 
And he would say to everybody, I am going to meditate. And he would say, oh, no, no, not again, not again. Because he would go and meditate, and he would come out really angry. <laughs> Until they pointed out to him, and he thought, maybe that's not the way to do it. And so what he would do would kind of just tense himself, repress his thought, no, 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 no. And then he came, he was all... And so after that, he changed a little the method, and it was uh, better. Mm -hmm. Yes? Well, it depends if you did. The question. the question was about daydreaming, and isn't it something which can be creative and imaginative? And you see, I would make a difference between daydreaming, which actually leads to frustration. Yeah, but that's not daydreaming, it's planning. Yeah, daydreaming is like you make, okay, daydreaming is like you make a film. You make a film, and in it, you are the actress, the directress, the editor, you even sell the peanuts. That's it. Yeah, so for me, daydreaming is like, is when you create a reality where everything goes according to plan. And when you come out of it, generally you become frustrated. When I think there is what I would call imaginative uh, thinking, where you might have an idea about your garden, or you might have an idea about a book. And then you can notice how long is it creative, and how long, when does it become repetitive? That's what is interesting with thought. When, of, of this imaginary nature. What am I doing there? Am I being creative? Am I occupying myself, which is fine too, if that's what you choose to do? Or am I just kind of, you know, I think there is creative thinking and there is different other thinking. And so it's kind of looking, how does it make me feel? How does it make me act? Because you could think about, I want this wonderful garden. And then you go back home and you have this terrible garden and you think, you know, I'm a terrible person or I'm going to rob a bank to have this beautiful garden or whatever. You know? I think I just got confused between daydreaming and wishful thinking. That's it. So I don't think daydreaming is always wishful thinking. Yeah, so I mean, it's just like I would say, like, it's more terminology. What we choose to call what. Okay, we have to stop here so we can do a little walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.